Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. Tempered through fire, all survivors possess wisdom and grit. Reclaim power and revel in life. I'm Kelsey Harper. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a survivor and clinical psychologist, and this is The Initiated Survivor. Here, we discuss topics relevant to survivors, so please be mindful of your needs as some of these topics might be triggering. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Initiated Survivor, everyone. I want to do this episode specifically about stalking and stalking trauma because this is part of my trauma history and I was just noticing I had these urges to really share about this and to talk about it and learn a little bit more about this you know other side to some of our trauma experiences. I know that not everyone who has rape trauma or sexual violence in their history has stalking as part of their history. I do. And the two are related and tied. And so there is this kind of compounding effect of it. And I wanted to just talk a little bit about it. I I looked up some information about like, what is stalking? How is it occurring in the world? Just to get some bearings about what this thing is and to share a little bit about its impact. And I think I'll probably be revisiting this topic in the future as well as I continue to do some of my own work on this. This is something that I'm currently addressing in my own therapy that is really, really important and not something that I've explored really before, but I found actually has had a pretty significant impact on me. And so in my experience, the person who raped me also stalked me for about six months pretty consistently afterwards. This was in ways of just like persistent and ongoing communication by phone, by Gchat, if you remember what that is, if people still do that, I don't even know if people do that. I definitely don't, but it's essentially a chat feature with Gmail, with different online platforms, you know, following or finding, tracking down different social media platforms or blogs that I was posting and then phone or showing up places that I was at. And it was very, very scary, very frightening. And one of the things that didn't really occur to me before that I was noticing as I was reflecting back on this was how that really, that experience kind of sustained me in this active trauma place of still feeling as though I'm in a dangerous situation because I was for six months at a time that I really didn't feel like I was able to move from that trauma place. And you probably heard me talk about that in my trauma story of like the shock phase or the active trauma symptom phase until after I had really established that he was not contacting me any further. And it took a long while for that to happen because part of the pattern around his behavior was that he would reach out to me and be like contacting me multiple times a day for two or three weeks and then would like just disappear for three weeks, two weeks at a time, a week, a couple of days, who knows? And then would just reappear again with a tense amount of communication. And this communication was not necessarily on its face really scary and threatening because it would be much more either just like friendly and benevolent, like, hey, just checking in, how are you doing? Or sometimes be 
romantic in nature. This person definitely had, you know, what we now know or what we call erotomanic delusional type of thoughts where there was this belief that we were somehow engaging in a romantic relationship, which we definitely were not, and or that there was a possibility for that. And that was, those were times that were definitely felt very sick and twisted to be experiencing that kind of communication from somebody that was very, very terrifying and very dangerous and upsetting and obviously had acted on violence towards me. And I know that this has definitely shaped and limited my sense of safety that I'm able to establish in the world. And I use present tense with that because it still affects me today. There are still a lot of situations that I generally feel very unsafe in because I'm always just kind of scanning the crowd to see if his face shows up. And that's just because my body and my brain has experienced that in the past where he just appears or, you know, calls me from a new number. I have, I think, nine different phone numbers at this point blocked because of him because he kept changing his phone number using other people's phones. And one of the things that I detest about social media is the people you may know feature because he always pops up for me. And at the same time, I also appreciate this feature because it means immediately upon me starting a new social media page, I can block him and he will not see any of my material. And I know that for sure because his account immediately pops up. I get to block him and any account that he he develops and we're good to go. He doesn't even know I existed in that space. But for the moment that I see his name and a picture or a space or just kind of know that he exists in the world by, by him popping up on the people you may know, there is that internal clench and gut punch and shakiness that comes. Luckily, because I've done a lot of trauma work at this point, that resolves pretty quickly after that kind of trigger and I'm able to move on okay. And I am able to do a lot of things in my life and go be out in places where there's crowds or a lot of people and I don't feel as unsafe as I used to. I used to avoid avoid crowds in any place. And by crowd, I mean like, you know, a gathering of 15 to 20 people or more. So like going to restaurants was really hard or I'd have to sit in certain places in the restaurants and would always just be constantly looking at the door and seeing who's walking in and would scan to make sure like, is he somewhere here? Even if logically, it also felt ridiculous because he doesn't live out here. He doesn't live in these different areas. He never would come to these different places. We're no longer in any kind of proximal space to each other that I know of. But this experience of him continuing to reach out and contact me kept activating my safety response mechanisms, my survival response as well. But one of the things that for me, like the response that got activated a lot that I'm going to talk about down the road in a different episode that you've probably heard a lot about is the fawn response. Um, or sometimes people call it the befriend response, fight, flight, freeze and befriend or fight, flight, freeze and fawn. I think we really just use those names because we wanted it all to go together really well as far as the survival mechanism names. But essentially, it's a reactive attachment response of that we are reacting to that the threat is somebody that we have to live with in some way, shape or form, and that we have to placate or meet their emotional needs in order to survive. 
So in extreme situations, the fawn response is something that we see happen with like kidnapping victims, that when they are living with the predator, they are doing things to take care of the predator, protect the predator, you know, meet their emotional needs. With the idea being that at some point, a window of opportunity might open up for the person to escape. And this is something, again, that instinctually happens. So we cannot choose whether or not we're going to fawn or whether or not we're going to flee unless our body knows that fleeing is safe to do. Again, unless that instinctual system knows, our unconscious, automatic, instinctual system knows. So for me, that meant immediately after being raped and assaulted by this person, right, the fawn response was very, very activated because my body and brain did not at all feel safe enough to flee or to fight off fleeing in in the sense of contact or communication would look like hanging up the phone, blocking phone numbers, that kind of thing. And that there was this mechanism in me that kept telling me that the safest thing to do was to placate him and to please him and to make sure that he was okay emotionally, that he would not get overwhelmed or upset, but also that it felt safer to know where he was and what he was doing rather than to not know. And so it was scarier to be in those moments of total ghosting or or lack of communication because I had no idea what was happening, what was going on with him, whether or not he was going to reach out and whether or not if he did reach out, if he was going to be in a, in a space of being safe and calm, or if he was in a space of like a intense amount of rage and distress or danger. And so what I noticed like with this stalking, it definitely also meant that that fawn response was going to be much more generalized for me to other relationships, that it was harder than for me to approach having conflict with someone in my life, possibly, you know, displeasing them or upsetting them because this fawn response was so sensitive. I've definitely been able to be much more effective at some of those conversations, you know, or confrontations and confrontation, little lowercase c confrontation, a healthy confrontation, like dialogue or conflict that's healthy, that can be helpful. I highly recommend actually the book, Conflict is Not Abuse. We'll, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. It kind of talks about that concept that conflict can be healthy. That's a whole other aside. For me, my the stalker kept re- reaching out to me and contacting me in a wide variety of ways and therefore was ever present in my life. It took actually about six, another six months after he stopped contacting me and also after I changed jobs and moved to feel like I was able to then move into the next phase of recovery, which actually that next phase of recovery still involved a high degree of isolation and withdrawal and doing a lot of different types of things to try to feel safe um, in my different worlds. It wasn't really until actually about a year to six months before the pandemic, so like 2019, When I started doing community-based events or like going to like yoga classes and stuff like that again, I did a couple of things, you know, particularly like spiritual activities with communities that I trusted, that kind of thing. But those often took a lot of effort on my part to attend. Like I remember going to my writing classes were such this internal tug of war because 
I really wanted to be in my writing class, but I was also very terrified and it was really emotionally exhausting. And all of that has definitely improved. I do think that, you know, with everything going virtual with the pandemic has helped accommodate a lot of this trauma um, symptom for me. And on one hand, there's part of me that's like, ooh, that might have made it a little bit worse. Um, but the other side of me also sees that as maybe just the world becoming a lot more accessible to people like me who are scared to leave and go places, but still really want to connect with the world. I've been able to take some really fantastic writing classes and connect with people all over the place in a way that feels very safe and contained and comfortable. The other thing about this for me particularly, and it's another concept that I'm going to discuss in a future episode, is how trauma is cumulative and compounds on each other. And this is something that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talks about in a video that she posted after she discussed her experience with the January 6th insurrection that occurred. And she disclosed that she too is a survivor of sexual assault and rape and that the insurrection compounded her trauma as that would happen with anybody with trauma. And what that means is that As traumas accumulate, it's not just one plus one equals two with regards to the impact that it has on our lives and our brain. It's actually more exponential, that it actually grows in an exponential fashion. And sometimes, because we don't necessarily always know like what trauma is going to have what effect on us, because it's just the quality of the trauma and the way that our body and brain kind of connects with that that certain things might have a much bigger impact. And then it's also exponentially exacerbating all of our previous trauma experiences. And this is also true for how we experience or how we see things happen in the research with people who present with PTSD. So some of my experience of cumulative trauma is that, you know, I had some different things that happen in in prior relationships that also probably crossed the line into some sexual assault or coercive type of stuff that at the time I definitely knew was not okay and wasn't okay that they happened and even directly addressed them with my partner in different ways, but they didn't lead to PTSD. They led me to be a little bit avoidant of relationships and to kind of shy away from getting too close to people, but I didn't develop trauma symptoms and that it was once the the rape and the stalking had occurred, there was this compounding factor on all of these things that have happened that then really activated PTSD. And I know one of the things that lingers in my mind as part of self-care and managing this is knowing that future traumas that might happen in my life is going to have a much bigger and deeper impact on me than it might have with other people because of the PTSD that I have developed from the rape and the stalking, but that the rape and the stalking occurring together also probably created a much more significant and impactful trauma symptom set than might otherwise have occurred if the stalking didn't occur with the the rape. And so to talk a little bit about what stalking is, because I think this is probably actually a lot more common than people think in different ways. And it happens again to different degrees and intensities, just like anything else. But that stalking ultimately is defined as unwanted and repeated contact, surveillance or communication 
that expresses a threat or places the victim in the in fear. And so the communication of a threat can be direct or indirect. And the part that says like places the victim in fear, what's helpful about this definition, because this is a definition that's also used in developing laws and regulating stalkers and stalking and seeking justice for that, is that this also ultimately is saying that if somebody is continuing to pursue you in an, with unwanted communication, even if they don't directly threaten you, if you are in fear of that person or things that they might do, that's enough to say this was stalking and it's not okay. But also there's indirect communication of threat. In a sense, for example, the person who is stalking me would get very agitated and dysregulated if I didn't answer him in a certain amount of time or if I didn't answer him in the way that he liked. And that is posing an indirect threat in the sense that it's a very obvious threat to my safety because also violence had happened previously. We would also say the indirect threat of crossing a boundary is is very present there too in the sense that if I block your phone number and you go and get somebody else's phone to then call me, that's a very direct boundary crossing and violation. And that holds an indirect sense of threat because this is somebody who is not respecting or honoring or adhering boundaries and, and social boundaries that exist. Stalking is also um, related and connected to harassment and intimidation and coercion. They can all co-occur you know, that somebody can be stalking you and using that as a method to harass and intimidate, to coerce something from you as well. And that we see with stalking that this is also a time when, like I mentioned before, that there's a higher or elevated occurrence of erotomatic delusions or erotomania, which is essentially when someone has an inaccurate belief that the target of their stalking loves them or has a affectionate relationship with them, sometimes in severe situations, believing that the person is actually engaged in a romantic relationship with them. And so stalking also includes covert and overt intimidation, threats, and violence, and can also be See, we can see a buildup effect of stalking leading to episodes of violence, particularly with intimate partner stalkers. And that way we would see that stalking occurs most frequently with intimate partners or former intimate partners, um, and usually also coincides primarily when there is intimate partner violence or domestic violence. That when somebody leaves that situation, they are at risk of being stalked and are at risk of future violence perpetrated by their, their former partner. And as we know, the statistics show that anybody leaving a domestic violence or intimate partner violence situation or relationship, they're at the most risk and the danger is especially high for violence at the moment of the breakup. And stalking plays a key pivotal role in that. We see that actually the most dangerous stalking, the stalking that tends to be connected to episodes of violence is around the intimate partners or intimate contacts. These are people that, you know, you might have dated or that you had a romantic or intimate relationship with, whether that was very brief or for a very long time. There's also a casual acquaintance or friend or neighbor stalkers. 
And these are just like, you know, somebody who's a neighbor that's stalking you that maybe they're upset about something and they decided to follow you or became overly interested in you and your information, casual acquaintance. So when you, you met at like a party or a friend of a friend or professional contact, this can be patients, clients or students who have a professional relationship with their target, you know, so that we see actually that the people who are at the highest risk with professional contact stalkers are healthcare providers, teachers, or lawyers. This can be due to actually typically somebody being upset about the services they got, either that they feel that they weren't taken care of or that they didn't get a grade that they liked or their lawyer didn't really help them out. This is also a prime space to for people to express erotomanic delusions when somebody, you know, falls in love with their teacher or their doctor or their lawyer or something projects all that on them and then engages in stalking as part of that. And then others are workplace contacts like employer, employee or customers can happen, especially like disgruntled employee type of trope that we see through this. The others that are less common are strangers or the famous. We see that when stalking happens with strangers, that is almost always typically related to engaging in acts of violence. So similar to like a serial killer stalking their their next victim ahead of time. It's it's not typical. It's very unusual, that type of stalking. The famous are those cases that you hear that actually supported and brought about laws against stalking and enabled stalking to be something that was an illegal and criminal activity so that we can get protection from it was often because celebrities were being stalked by fans and were having dangerous things happen and they were able to get some laws passed. So there are also, um, and I'm going to send you also cite all of my resources in the show notes. Are different types of stalkers. There are rejected stalkers, people who felt rejected or were rejected by somebody, and they are trying to either reverse or avenge the rejection. So reversing the rejection might look like, you know, okay, this person just didn't mean to break up with me, or they were just angry at me. And as soon as they get over it, they're going to want to get back together and I want to be in their life. We can see this happen in a wide variety of ways, all of the spectrum with things like borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, that stalking can be a part of that. And sometimes some evidence of like stalking that happens with people can be that they believe like, oh, well, this person still wants to be my friend. So like I'm checking in with them as a friend every single day you know, and getting kind of upset that they're not returning. That can feel like stalking to the target, you know, and then upwards into more severe ways. There's also the resentful stalkers. This is where they have a grievance against their target. Um, this can be like, for example, somebody who maybe felt like their lawyer didn't represent them effectively or get the result that they wanted, or something bad happened at work or they were fired from a job. We also see intimacy seekers, and this is when somebody believes that the the target of their stalking was someone that they're intended to have a relationship with, that they're meant to be, or they're seeking love or sexual contact with that person. This is also where we see a high incident rate of narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, and those erotomanic delusions. 
This is something when I look back on the person who was stalking me, I think was what type of stalker he probably was, is an intimacy seeker, is seeking intense amount of connection or this projected relationship that we didn't have and getting very angry and upset and aggressive when that facade would break and it was shown that that's not actually true. And then there's also the incompetent suitors, which I kind of just love that title. <laughs> People who are suitors and not very affected at that. They have poor social skills, but they feel that they maybe are entitled to a relationship with somebody and are stalking them on that basis. And then there's predatory, the ones that are preparing to preparing and planning to attack. It's often in sexual nature that they're, you know, serial rapists or serial killers. We also see that there are some incidents of people with psychotic disorders that engage in stalking, and that's usually when they have either delusional disorders or disorders of persecution, which means that they believe that everybody's out to get them, that maybe the target of their stalking is out to get them, or that the target of their stalking is stalking them. And so they're engaging in this relationship with them. Again, that's also uncommon. That's not very typical with stalking, though it is something that can occur. Most stalkers are actually not psychotic, which makes a lot of sense because when we think of this from a psychological perspective, a psychotic disorder, we also talk about this as a thought disorder or a disorder of organization in the sense that it's really with people who have psychotic disorders, they have disorganized ways of thinking and perceiving the world and engaging in the world. Disorganized, not in the sense of just being messy, but in the sense of not being able to piece things together in a sequential nature, logic and intellect not quite working the way that we would see that in a brain that doesn't have psychotic symptoms unable to follow directions or instructions, unable to arrive to conclusions or use deductive reasoning because of the symptoms of the disorder and the way that it affects the brain and the way that it creates ideas and thoughts. And so stalking takes a lot of effort and organization of I'm seeking contact with this person and they aren't in my life, so I'm going to go follow them around or I'm going to call them. I'm going to reach out to them. I'm going to say and do these different things to try to maintain contact with them. That oftentimes it does take a tremendous amount of organized effort to stalk somebody because as soon as the target realizes that they're being stalked, they do things to put up boundaries around that. And the stalker has to do things to circumvent those boundaries. And that takes a lot of organization. And so it seems really obvious to me that it would be really difficult for somebody with a disorganized thought pattern or symptom set to engage in stalking. And what we mean by organized is somebody who can use deductive reasoning, understands cause and effect, is able to relate things together and to follow instructions. And when that also means that somebody is using, is organized and is using stalking behavior as one of the things that they engage in, that we're looking at somebody with pretty severe patterns of behaviors. And that's when we're talking about personality disorders. Personality disorders are disorders of relating to people, relating to yourself, emotional and affect regulation and behavioral regulation that is pervasive to all situations and all relationships. It is considered to be pretty severe when that is diagnosed. 
that oftentimes the most common situation is that there's this vindictive blame obsession or a dependency minimization denial and jealousy occurring around this. So minimization and denial is kind of saying things like, well, it's okay for me to do this, or it's not that big of a deal, or it's not a problem. Like this person likes talking to me, so it's okay that I call them all the time. Or she wasn't forceful with this boundary, so I'm still going to do it until she's like really, really forceful. That's kind of the denial or minimization. It's not It's not that big of a deal. Or sometimes this sense of jealousy or dependency, like I need this person, I have to have them in my life to exist. Jealousy around, you know, this person's doing other things in their life that I'm, I'm not okay with, or I feel jealous about that kind of things that we see present as well. We also see that 10% of stalkers have the erotomanic disorder or erotomanic delusional disorder. That's what I talked about before, about having that false belief that you have an affectionate or intimate or romantic sexual relationship with your target or should have that relationship with your target. 10% is actually a really high instance for one, delusional disorder to occur in a population and two, a specific delusional disorder. So we know that this is something that is obviously much more common with stalkers. So some of the laws around stalking, I think, are also important to talk about because, you know, we want to talk about like dangerous things happen. And as a community and a society, we're working to try to provide safety and justice to people. Obviously, we definitely have a long ways to go with all of these things, but there are some laws in place. The first state to criminalize stalking was California in 1990. It was the first state to criminalize this after a series of high-profile stalking cases. Like I said, it was those celebrities getting stalkers and, and reporting this and pushing that actually caused legislation and policy changes to, to occur in order to criminalize this act and create safety. And the Los Angeles P Police Department was also the first to establish a threat management unit in 1990, the first in the U.S. to do so. And that within three years of California and Los Angeles Police Department doing this in response to those celebrities, every other state criminalized stalking as well as criminal harassment and criminal menace. And what's unique about this, about stalking, is essentially it's something where injury has not yet occurred, right? That would actually be assault and battery or rape and sexual assault. But that stalking itself is saying something has not occurred, but threatening to do something and making somebody feel unsafe by repeated unwanted contact is illegal. And so it's, an, it's a very different and very nuanced behavior that the law is trying to address. And this also, because of the stalking law, we also saw the Driver's Privacy and Protection Act pass in 1994. This is where people cannot access private identifying information about you based upon like your driver's license or your car's uh, license plate, that kind of thing, which was really important and vital. And then in 2005, we saw the Violence Against Women Act. This is something you're probably seeing a lot of conversation about now too, because it actually has not been reauthorized, which is really odd under a Democratic candidate or Democratic president and office and Senate and House that we haven't reauthorized this because it typically is 
but it was put in place in 2005 and it saw stalking as engaging in a course of conduct directed at a specific person that would cause a reasonable person to fear for them, their safety or the safety of others or suffer substantial emotional distress. And so they changed the definition in a way that actually was able to address more cases of stalking that we were seeing occur and enable people to be able to take actions of safety. So things like getting restraining orders, getting police on board with being mindful and aware of somebody who is out there stalking somebody and to actually intervene. Because stalking is seen as a criminal behavior, we don't have to wait until something violent has happened for somebody to be taking to jail or prison, and for a person to be protected and safe, which is really good, really important. There is definitely a lot of conversation happening and dialogue around that when we have definitions and laws that are so general in nature, it does increase the likelihood that implicit bias, racism, and sexism, and misogyny, and and transphobia are all going to take place of in those application of laws and also, you know, disproportionately affect people of color in different ways because that's how our system is inherently designed to engage in those kinds of discrimination and types of of prejudice. And so as we kind of continue to explore and understand this and pass laws Ideally, that also is something that continues to get refined so that we are not using our stalking laws as a way of acting on racism. For the Violence Against Women Act, like I said, it has not been reauthorized. What it does contain is is it authorizes and it creates access to a solid amount of money as well as different laws to investigate and prosecute violent crimes against women. And this is really valuable because it actually provides a lot of resources and support to our communities to do so. But it also then sets up and establishes different departments to continue to research violence against women and understand what's happening and make changes in a more global global sense. This is exactly what we want to have take place of being able to understand rape and rape culture. And so the Violence Against Women Act again, is also very limited. As you notice, it's Violence Against Women Act. It's not Men's Violence Against Women Act, which, you know, if you listen to any, listen to or look up any work by Jackson Katz, he talks a lot about why it's actually really important to call it that way, because what we're speaking to with the violence against women is we're talking about domestic violence, intimate partner violence, rape, and sexual assault, which is predominantly perpetrated by male perpetrators. And if we're really trying to understand what's going on in our cultures and communities about violence against women, we are going to be more effective at identifying and researching more about perpetrators rather than just victims. But then we saw also in 2011, stalking is considered an offense under the Uniform Code of of Military Justice. And so it's something that if a target or a victim is in the military or a perpetrator is in the military, they can seek justice and services and support through the military to get help around that. And we also in 2014 saw that there was now a requirement put in place to report stalking and domestic violence and dating violence. In 2018, the PAWS Act expanded the definition of stalking to include conduct that causes a person to experience a reasonable fear of death or serious bodily injury to their pet. 
which as a pet owner myself, definitely am on board with them getting protection and safety as well. I'm hoping that in the future, we're actually going to see the Violence Against Women Act continue to get reauthorized as well as expanded uh, to be more effective at researching things like rape culture and misogyny and how we interfere with developing culture around consent and consent nature and the ways in which that communication occurs across across the board with different power structures that reinforces and supports violence against women, including rape, sexual assault, and stalking. Like I said, I'm probably going to continue to revisit this as I continue to work through my own experience of stalking. This is definitely a unique experience, not in the sense that it's uncommon, because I, I do think that people, especially survivors of sexual assault and rape, have experienced this more often than than not. But it's definitely something that I'm continuing to learn more about and continuing to uncover in myself and how this really impairs and interferes with our lives and the different kinds of recovery that is available to us. For me right now, I'm working on it with my therapist through EMDR, and that has been a really fantastic experience. I also think that getting a dog was really helpful. He's not really a protect. he is a protective dog, but he is not going to protect me from any major perpetrator because he is a small, white, fluffy little beast. But he he would tell you he is definitely very protective of me. But it, it helped in a lot of ways because he became a companion that I could take outdoors with me and that I had to take outdoors with me because he demanded to go outdoors. He still does. Demands to go outside and he loves going on his walk and sniffing all these different things and peeing all over the place. And he needs that as part of his health and wellness. And in turn, because I'm taking him out on all these walks and taking him on hikes and he goes with me when I travel and stuff like that, um, that I'm getting out of my house and I'm getting out into the world. And I know that when I adopted him a few years ago, that my life expanded greatly with him entering my life. And so he's definitely a little bit of a white floofy savior for me. And I highly recommend to anybody who is interested in getting getting an animal or support animal to help them with some of their symptoms of stress and distress, especially around being able to feel safe in the world to definitely try it out. Great. Like I said, I'm going to circle back around this topic again down the road and I will connect with all of you soon. Thank you so much for creating space and holding space to hear my story today about stalking and um, sharing in some of the facts. Thank you so much. I am a clinical psychologist and love to share these skills and tips to build resilience and recovery. However, this podcast is not a replacement for psychotherapy or mental health care. We have links in our show notes where you can connect with a provider or you can get a referral from your primary doctor if you wish to receive those services. If you are struggling today or wish to speak to someone, know that RAIN is always available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to offer support, guidance, and referrals for help. You can speak to someone right now at RAIN at the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. The Initiated Survivor is a podcast written and hosted by me, Kelsey Harper. It is produced and edited and all around awesome podcast magic is casted by Sam Valentine. The beautiful music you heard is written and performed by Michael Carpenter Jr. If you wish, please leave us a sweet review so other survivors can find this podcast and get connected as well.